My community was hit by two cyclones in just one year. Our city was completely destructed. We don't want to live like this anymore. We need to understand that what is good for biodiversity is good for climate, and what is good for climate is good for biodiversity. Parties are keeping to their positions, and the scope for compromise has not yet really been identified. This is The Lid Is On, I'm Connor Lennon. And I'm Laura Quiñones. It's busy again, Laura. Oh my God, really, really, really busy. You can probably hear the people around us. That's yep. because the Brazilian president-elect Lula, he's been here, just finished uh, doing a speech. There were huge crowds. It's adding to that music festival vibe. <laughs> yeah, it was the Lula Palusa. <laughs> Lula, oh, very good. <laughs> did you make that up? I like of that. Of course I did. <laughs> I think but... really there's a lot of hope invested in him, isn't there, in, um, in terms of bringing protection for the Amazon. It's a crucial global carbon sink. And there were, there were whoops many times during his speech. Yes, and actually uh, the head of the United Nations Environment Program said that he will place a major emphasis on the Amazon and on tropical forests, and she has called it a massive game for climate, biodiversity, and for the people of the Amazon. Well, the theme of the day is biodiversity, aptly enough, and the UN's preparing the groundwork for a major conference in December. It's being described by the organizers as equivalent to the, the Paris COP 2015, which really changed the global conversation on climate change. We will also hear from a teenage member of the indigenous Guarani in the Amazon who told us how her people are being affected by climate change. And we're going to get an insight into the mysterious world of the deep ocean, which is not immune to the effects of the climate crisis. But first, why don't we just get back to the negotiations room? It's getting to crunch time now, just a few days to go. Uh, where are we now? So the special representative of the COP27 president, actually, he said that he hoped that under the current circumstances of our world and how climate change is affecting us, he was hoping to see more willingness to cooperate and accommodate. But he said that, you know, at the beginning of this COP, they only came up with the agenda item of loss and damage at the last hour. So he said that there could be a breakthrough right at the end. The technical discussions are still ongoing in informal settings and there's uh, something called pairing happening, right? So they bring yeah. together a pair of ministers from different countries and the idea is that in a smaller group they're going to thrash out some of these thorny issues. I presume loss and damage is one of those. Yes, that's one of the thorny ones, but uh, there is also other, other items that they still haven't agreed on. One is facing out all of fossil fuels. Not all countries uh, agree on that and uh, there's still some as well like procedural like in terms of implementation of all the uh, promises they made last year in Glasgow of the Glasgow Climate Pact there's still some some uh, technical things some implementation that they haven't agreed on and we've been hearing from some NGOs there's a there's an NGO press conference that takes place every day and there were some complaints that so far they haven't seen any language on energy transition and as you say yeah the fossil fuel phase down and very worried that this 1.5 degree target is going to be very difficult to achieve. We learned today also that the alliance of small island states and other developing countries are very concerned with the lack of progress on funding for loss and damage. This is the harm caused by man-made climate change and from the very beginning this has been contentious. Issues of who's liable, who should compensate and, and how much, but it was a big move forward wasn't it to actually get it on the agenda. It was a big move. Like I just said, uh, the president of the COP27 
So that that just that was a last minute decision. Like they made at the last hour, they were able to put this on the agenda. So it's really really important. But we got to see what happens in the end. And the Alliance of Small Island States, astonishingly, they've been trying to get this on the agenda since 1991. That gives you an idea of, of how slow some of these issues are to actually move forward. And the chairperson of the alliance, Sir Mulwyn Joseph who is also Antigua and Barbuda's environment minister, he was quoted today as saying that some developed countries, in his view, are trying to actually stall progress. Rana Haynes is a negotiator for AOSIS at this climate conference. I caught up with her earlier when she was grabbing something to eat between meetings. She confirmed what we've been hearing, that loss and damage is far from the only topic where negotiating positions remain very far apart. There's real concern about how things are progressing across the board. Of course, loss and damage is a key issue, uh, the key outcome that the alliance is looking for from this COP, and things there are still not coming together. So I would say he's right in his assessment. The minister has been talking to other ministers. He knows exactly where it's at in terms of prospects for agreement. But there's still some time left, so we'll see. Why are things dragging so much? Well, it doesn't appear that... At the moment, there's a lot of scope for agreement. Um, it seems as though, you know, the pro- in the process, parties are keeping to their positions and the scope for compromise is, has not yet really been identified. What we're discussing here specifically is the proposal for the Loss and Damage Response Fund that AOSIS and broader G77 want to see established here at this COP. On the other side, there have been a lot of questions around what that fund would do, where would it be placed, why do we need a fund, can we do something that's not a fund, maybe we need a process. So, you know, the debate is more around the actual proposal that's on the table, and as yet there doesn't seem to be much scope for compromise in play. Well, that's lost some damage. What about the other main issues? Are the different parties still too far apart? Or do you think we're going to get an outcome document at the end of this process? That's still really uncertain. Um, Of course, the discussions on the cover decision are ongoing. I hear there's nothing scheduled today, but there's a mandate for some text to be produced by the presidency. So we won't know until those discussions are relaunched at some point. Now, today it's Biodiversity Day, biodiversity being the wide range of flora and fauna on the Earth, and it is in crisis. Because of human activity, millions of species are being lost forever, and man-made climate change is responsible. And we've done a bit of reporting on coral reefs, haven't we, on this subject earlier this year. You were in uh, Colombia. I was in Colombia, yes. Uh, we produced a series of three multimedia pieces, including videos, of uh, these amazing NGOs around the country that are working to restore corals. Actually, invite you all to go to UN News and Google Coral Reefs UN News, and you will find it. You'll find it very easy. And I was in Barbados, looking at the the devastation that pollution from runoff has caused to the coral reefs. A very sad sight. The coral reefs around the coastline of Barbados are in a very poor state, and there are, as as in Colombia, there are organisations that are trying to to bring it back, organising nurseries to try and revitalise the coral reefs. And on that topic today, there was an event on the importance of protecting coral reefs today. It was, uh, the name of the event was Hope for Coral Reefs. Uh, it was organized by the UN Environment Program, uh, the Ocean Agency, which is an environmental NGO. 
And the singer Ellie Goulding, who is an UNIP ambassador, she spoke at the event after doing uh, an expedition here in the Red Sea. She went snorkeling and she called one of the she called these reefs one of the most resistant reefs and they are, you know, like they're still there, they're still colorful. So they are they can be studied in order to find out how to take care of other coral reefs around the world and that was her big message. We honestly just want real action. You know, look what happened when there was a pandemic. The world came together and galvanized and, and, uh, and we tackled it. So the same thing should be for the climate and the nature um, crisis. It's an emergency, so action needs to be taken now. And it should be at the forefront of every single world leader or policymakers. It, it, it should be the top of their priority list. Most of the public now, especially young people, are desperate for change and they're frustrated. I've spoken to a lot of the young activists here at the Youth Pavilion and uh, they really are, they're doing all the right things. They're here, they're showing up. Um, and I think just be conscious of everything, you know, like read good news, news sources, make sure you're not reading fake news. Um, and then, you know, you can take small things and actions in your own life, small changes. You know, get involved with your local community, like see if there's groups you can get involved with, see if there's, I don't know, ways, like small tiny habits that you can change um, that make a, a huge difference actually in the long run, collectively. But to be honest, people, people they all have the will. It's a political will that we don't have still. British singer Ellie Goulding. Now, staying with ocean biodiversity, our colleague Devi Palanivalu had a great conversation with an expert on the deep seas. Her name is Lisa Levin. She's Professor Emeritus of Biological Oceanography at Scripps Institute of Oceanography in California. She took Devi on a journey into this largely unexplored and fascinating world. Even down there, human activity is posing a severe threat. We have tens of thousands of underwater volcanoes. We have vast plains. We have canyons that cut thousands of canyons that cut our margins. We have chemosynthetic systems, hydrothermal vents and methane seeps. We have low oxygen zones, many, many different kinds of systems, each with its own species. The threats to those come from a variety of different kinds of human activities, direct and indirect. So climate change is one, and the deep ocean is, for the most part, cold, but it's warming up. It's becoming more acidic, and it's losing oxygen, and we believe also the food supply is changing as a result of climate change. Uh, We have a, a lot of bottom disturbance that happens from fishing activities. We call that bottom trawling when it's uh, when a, a big dredge is pulled across the seafloor to gather fish and that creates a lot of disturbance. It destroys the very fragile three-dimensional structures created by uh, deepwater corals and sponges that supp- themselves support a tremendous amount of biodiversity of both small organisms and of fish. Uh, We have oil and gas extraction that's been going on in deeper and deeper water over the years. And when we have um, a massive spill, it creates massive pollution in the deep water. Deep sea animals grow very, very slowly and they can live to be thousands of years. And so once we disrupt or disturb that biodiversity, it takes a very, very long time for it to recover. We don't have seabed mining yet, but it's looming, and you know some some would like to have it begin even as early as the end of next year. 
Um, but that also would be a very disruptive process that would damage biodiversity. But there's also a lot of potential with uh, the deep sea. One of the things about the deep sea is most of it remains undiscovered. Most of the species are uh, have never been seen or described. But what little we do know is that there is a tremendous potential in that biodiversity to help humans solve their problems. So we've discovered biopharmaceuticals or effectively drugs from the deep sea. There are anti-inflammatory and antibiotics that um, have been discovered and are in development. There are industrial agents that come from the enzymes of microbes and animals in the deep sea. We know that some of the microbes can sequester carbon. They can eat methane. So we have natural methane emerging from the seafloor at environments we call methane seeps. These are one of the systems I study. And the microbes can turn that methane into rock and keep it sequestered there. Or some of the animals have bacteria that eat the methane and turn it into animal tissue. And uh, it stays there. So there are important uh, roles. I believe that they can be templates for other human uses, other ways of sequestering methane. But there's a lot of undiscovered genetic diversity down there that could someday be very useful to us. Deep ocean expert Lisa Levin. Inger Anderson, the UNEP executive director, is here. She's been preparing the ground for another COP, a COP being a conference of parties. This is the Biodiversity COP 15, which is taking place in Montreal this December. She told Devi that our rampant consumption and production is driving the climate and biodiversity crisis. We need to understand that what is good for biodiversity is good for climate, and what is good for climate is good for biodiversity. Yes, we need to consume because this is what we do as humanity, but we need to think smartly about our footprint, whether it's on the climate side or whether it's on the biodiversity side. If we invest in nature and nature's infrastructure, forests, coral reefs, mangroves, coastal forests, Well, it protects us from high storms, it provides habitat for species, but it also stores carbon, so it has both a mitigation and an adaptation dimension. We are less than a month away from COP15, the very long overdue and much needed framework for biodiversity. What are your expectations? It is in a sense that the Paris moment for this uh, convention is not easy. Let's talk about what are the drivers of biodiversity loss as per IPBES, the scientific body that tells us what, how we're doing. Agriculture and land conversion for infrastructure. So we convert land and put it to good use, but there we lose biodiversity. So we have to have a conversation about our agricultural policies. Climate change, well, we're having a conversation about climate, but it's complicated, but that's a driver of biodiversity loss. Over-exploitation, over-fishing, cutting too much forest, whatever it is, hunting too much, whatever it is. So we have to have a conversation about that. And, of course, pollution, where, where the, that toxic sludge from our existence, which is impacting biodiversity. And finally, um, invasive species, species that we move from one place to another. All of this together, how do we solve that? That means we need to deal with agriculture, but we all have to eat. So we need to find sustainable and nature-positive 
agriculture. It also means that we need to deal with all the other issues, pollution, over-harvesting, and invasive species, how we trade and what little critters come along with the ships. It is not simple. And we need to obviously deal with the agricultural chemicals, pesticides and, and insecticides, as well as fertilizers that have a huge chemical load on our soils and in our waterways. We need to look at this broader suite of solutions to protect biodiversity. And that means biodiversity in our, on our farms and fields, in our backyards, in our cities, on our balconies. It means reducing um, chemical uh, input into what we do in, in every place and being smart about how we care for nature. So it's a big, tall order, and that's what we have to do. Inger Anderson, the executive director of the UN Environment Programme, UNEP. Let's get back to the Amazon, Lara. As we said right at the top, President-elect of Brazil, Lula, is here to great acclaim. We could hear the whoops and cheers from our office just above. To get an idea of what climate change means for the people of the Amazon, we caught up with Adriana Mafialetti. She's a young climate justice activist. She's just 19. She's from Brazil's Amazon Basin. She's part of the indigenous Guarani tribe. She says that her people are particularly vulnerable to the effects of climate change. My community was hit by two cyclones in just one year, and all of our city was completely destructed. So we don't want to live like this anymore. We need a safe space. We need a safe planet to live. We don't want to be afraid if we are going to live tomorrow, if we are going to have food, if we are going to have a home. Everyone needs to have a safe place to live. It's a human basic right. So we are here at COP again to say our demands, to ask for concrete actions, and to ask the global leaders to act right now. This is not something for tomorrow, this is not something for uh, 10 years um, forward. This is something for us to do right now. Climate crisis is affecting and killing people right now, so we must act now. I hope that uh, especially indigenous people, indigenous leadership can be listened, because I think that in my opinion, the huge mistake that happened was when colonialism tried to exploit people from the most uh, marginalized communities, like indigenous people, instead of listen to them. Indigenous people have the most sustainable way to live, so we must learn from them and not uh, put them aside in this fight. Climate crisis uh, is everything about indigenous people, because even their less than 5% of the global population, we protect over 80% of the planet's biodiversity. So indigenous people should be the priority number one in the fight against the climate crisis. And that's what I want for the global leaders from this COP to do, to listen to them and to see how we need to act, how we need to treat this climate crisis that is killing people. Adriana Mafioletti from Brazil's indigenous Guarani tribe calling on world leaders to listen to indigenous people and learn about what it means to live in harmony with the planet. Well, that's pretty much it from us today, although we do have to mention something that you were very sneaky and quiet about today, Lara. Out of nowhere, we're looking at, oh, what's going on today? And we see that you're actually speaking at an event organized by a host of UN agencies and others. Come on, come clean. What were you doing? <laughs> Well, you know, one of the things that I love most in the world is food. Okay. And one of the things that I love second most in the world is journalism and communications. So 
I was actually there at the launch of the cookbook in support of the United Nations uh, for people on the planet. It contains um, over 20 recipes all made by people from all around the world. And uh, the, the, the amazing thing about this cookbook is that it tells you what's the carbon footprint that you're gonna leave after um, eating them and cooking them. So I was there as part of the, this amazing event. You know, uh, this book was created by Kitchen Connection, an NGO uh, which is based in New York, and they've been working for years to get this out. And they've also done it in conjunction with Food and Agriculture Organization and the World Food Program, as well as other UN agencies and UN Goodwill Ambassadors. So it was a, it was a great event. Anything particularly tasty in there you want to share? Anything with bugs in? You remember a couple of days ago that we were being sold the idea of <laughs> bug cuisine? No, no, no. I didn't see anything with bugs, but I haven't gone through all the recipes yet. So I invite you to look it up, the cookbook in support of the United Nations. And what were you talking about? Well, I was talking about how here we, at the United Nations, as communicators, uh, we are communicating solutions. And this is definitely one of the solutions, you know, like being more conscious about our carbon footprint and about the individual choices that we can make daily. For example, have you had any strawberries in winter? Um, yes, I have, but I shouldn't, right? You shouldn't because that has a lot of a big carbon footprint because they've been brought from very, very far away. Well, what a lovely segue, Laura. You're a real professional because tomorrow is Solutions Day. There you go. We're bringing back Bertrand Picard, who is a friend of the podcast. He was on last year, and he is continuing to go around the world looking for local solutions that are country-specific. And there'll be many more besides. And, of course, we will bring you an update on where things are going with negotiations. Hopefully, we'll have a bit more progress to share than we have had today. That's it from me. And from me, Laura Quinones. <laughs>